0: Hello, I'm David Jays. We'll be launching the second season of Why Dance Matters, the Royal Academy of Dance podcast, any day now. But first, a one off special episode. The 9th of September is the final of the RAD's flagship event, the Fontaine International Ballet Competition, named for the everlasting icon of classical ballet. Talented young dancers from across the world test themselves in challenging solos, including brand new work by a most distinguished choreographer. This is a tradition of the competition. Every year, a leading choreographer creates solos for the teenage dancers and they get to work with an experienced artist and put their own stamp on a piece that has never been performed before. This year, the commissioned choreographer is Ashley Page, formerly a dancer and dance maker with the Royal Ballet, then artistic director of Scottish Ballet, and now creating work for leading international companies. His work is bold and spiky and a little bit lush. There's a lot for the young Fontaine finalists to learn from, usually... Everything at the Fontaine, from the coaching to the nail-biting medal presentation, would take place in person. But guess what? It's 2021 and all the doings are digital. It means you can watch the final wherever you are. Ticket details are in our show notes. But for Ashley, as well as roaming across his multifarious career and learning what dance means to him, We'll also ask about creating the Fontaine solos remotely. What was the atmosphere like in the Zoom where it happened? Let's find out. Ashley Page, welcome to Why Dance Matters. Let's start off with why it is that you've been lured into the RAD's welcoming sticky web because you're the commissioned choreographer for the Fontaine International Ballet Competition, which is its flagship competition. And they always have a distinguished maker of dance to work with the young candidates. But this year, of course, you can't do that in person. So how does it work?
1: Well, as you can probably imagine, and how everyone's been working through the lockdowns, companies included, via the old Zoom screen. So it's been at least one remove. And in some cases, because it's got a global read, we had to spread out across some quite extreme times in order to facilitate those people in different time zones, who could only get studios at certain times. So it wasn't just the one remove as it were remotely through the screen, but also people working at odd hours that they wouldn't normally be dancing
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow that must be that must be quite disconcerting for you as a way uh, of working
1: yeah, I mean certainly. I mean, we started one session, I think, at 9am, or a couple of sessions. I'm a night person. (laughs) Oh, right. (laughs) Um, And to to put yourself in in, uh, a work mode at that time, let alone creative mode, I got into a rhythm of it, actually, through the week that we did it. So it became, you know, normal to be getting up earlier than I normally do and driving across London to Battersea and getting into a studio and straight into it. Also, as I got to know the candidates it became a bit easier as well because there was a bit more
0: familiarity each day. I was going to ask about that because I guess when you're working in person, you can sense the room, you can read the room, but can you read the (laughs) Zoom in the same way?
1: No, I have to to be honest about that. You can't. I developed a sort of visual familiarity you know in terms of how they moved how they responded to information I mean quite a lot of the time it was me talking to them but occasionally I asked if they had any questions and they had to come and switch their microphone on and do all of that so the conversational side of the creative process was vastly reduced and actually I have to say I talk a lot <laughs> when I'm making things I mean a lot of the information is as much verbal as it is me you know, demonstrating things and describing things
0: physically. Are these character points? Are you talking about how something might feel? What kind of what kind of words? Uh, yeah, are you actually, using?
1: all of those things. They were just abstract solos. You know, just yeah. pure dance solos. So there wasn't any characterization in, involved. It was to do with pure dance. We decided to have a couple of dancers in the room and and by chance, well, I sort of slightly engineered it that they were dancers that had worked with me. Right. So they knew how I worked and I knew how they worked. It was a bit of a shortcut, really. And we prepared something between us because the time slots, the longest was two hours. Mm -hmm. And we had to have finished making the solos on the first day so the candidates could then you know have a chance to work on them and have me coach them and we only had those two dancers to help me in the studio for the first day so we had to work pretty quickly i couldn't guarantee that i'd make two entire solos in you know in such a short space of time in order to guarantee that they would be done and we could carry on with the rest of the week as it was supposed to be As I say, we prepared something, two solos, with these two dancers in order to have them then clearly demonstrated for the dancers. Because I'm, you know, I'm in my 60s now and I'm certainly not as clear in my demonstration of things, especially on a screen. Yeah. And we had three different sessions with different groups of candidates on that first day because of the different time zones. So we basically repeated the process three times. And then I had it on my own for the rest of the week, doing the coaching sessions with them. Again, always three sessions in one day in the different time zones. So by the end of the week, we'd done a pretty thorough job on, on me coaching them. Interestingly, one of them was in Mexico City, and we had far fewer issue, technical issues than we did with somebody who was just down the road in Chelsea in a studio. So I don't know what the hell is going on I there. Guess but, technology
0: um, has been the great leveller. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But actually, in the end, at the end of the week, I felt that it was as good as you could probably get, given all the yeah um, one remove issues.
0: Yeah. With the Fontaine something that is very different to when you're working on a piece with a professional company is that you might work with two even three casts but you wouldn't normally see the same piece of dance you've created danced by dozens
1: there are about 14 or 15 of them i think
0: right did that mean that there were 14 or 15 totally different kind of feel to to each of the Yeah the i attempts? mean you know
1: everyone's individual so and they all have different bodies and there are also different ages, yeah. important to say that. You're working with a 15-year-old at one point, and then I think there was somebody that was 19 or 20, I think. So that was interesting. With the Mexican connection, <laughs> he didn't really speak any English, so he had an interpreter, which was actually his teacher, who was sort of standing by to convey information. But actually, considering that... At one point, he had no studio. Mm -hmm. So he was out on some piazza somewhere in the city.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: With people walking by. You know, it was extraordinary. (laughs) And he was in sneakers because he was dancing on, you know, a concrete surface. It was extraordinary that different situations, I mean, that was the most extraordinary. Yeah. Most of the others had decent studio, but some of them were in tiny little spaces and some of them had really decent studios. Yeah. I had to kind of cater for that because there would be something that would travel literally, you know, down, uh, for instance, down a diagonal mm. and some people could fit the whole sequence in and others couldn't quite. Gosh. So it was difficult to get them to move the way I wanted them to through that particular diagonal sequence with the kind of energy and the sense of travel if they didn't have the space to be able to fit it all in.
0: And does it take you back to teenage Ashley? What were you like at uh, that 15 to 18, well, plain.
1: <laughs> it didn't really, because I, I work with students fairly regularly and have done throughout my career, you know, yeah. on and off. Teaching is quite different now from it, what how it was when I was a, their age. Yeah. It's too different to ring any bells, really. Right. Uh, what it does is it makes me realise how different it is, you know.
0: Different uh, in what way? Was it just more hierarchical, um, stricter?
1: I, th- No, I think it's more organised now. Mm. It felt, even at White Lodge, it you know, the Royal Bally Lower School, I went there when I was 12, but you can start younger than that, to 15, 16. I mean, they, they know much more about everything now. They have a whole backing team of health experts and nutritionists, and they all have a Pilates studio, or well, most professional schools vocational schools now have have pilates equipment and and a dedicated pilates teacher and they do weight training and i mean we did do a little bit of very basic weight training with just some dumbbells when i was a student in the upper school Mm -hmm. but no it's much more diverse and uh, all-encompassing now i mean it's a full fully supported training network And that's not to say all these candidates had that because, of course, some of them are in private dance schools and they don't have that. But generally speaking, if I make a piece for a school, it has those resources. It's just very different. And this was different again because, as I say, you know, they were all in different spaces. You know, students have it much better these days, I would say.
0: (laughs) What was the pastoral care like when you were a student? Because it's... It's mean, such a, a febrile age, yeah. isn't it? Those t- yeah. There's a lot going on in those teenage years.
1: We had a few matrons. I suppose they had rudimentary medical training, I don't know, and there was a nurse... <laughs> Um, and there was someone we called Sister who must have, you know, also had that kind of level of medical training. But it was, yeah, if they if you were really ill, they got the doctor in. Mm-hmm. And there were, you know, house mistresses and house masters if you were a boarder, which I was. That, I would say that was the more the pastoral care bit. And at the upper school, we had a welfare officer, but they were more really engaged in finding you somewhere to live right. rather than mental health. We had also a doctor who was the company doctor as well at the time. I um, mean, we're talking early 70s now into the mid 70s at the upper school who looked in on the school once a week. And he, well, uh, you know, I went through my usual, you know, the usual teenage problems and lack of confidence and all that sort of thing. You know, I used to go and see him once a week during a certain period of my time at the, at the upper school. We became good friends in the end and he became my doctor when I got into the company. And so that was, you know, developed into a more of a kind of social friendship thing as well as him being my doctor eventually but that was it really they have accommodation now Mm -hmm. at the upper school which we didn't have you know at all when I was there and that's all been supported generously by all sorts of sponsors and donors and I think that uh, the first two years at the upper school are all in one particular place, I think it's in Pimlico and the other then the, the third years have their own place in Covent Garden much closer to the school itself. And that's all got staff supporting it as well, I think, and I'm not quite sure how it's run. Yeah. But, you know, they call them house mothers and I suppose never as a house father, but certainly a house mother. Over the years I think there have been a few, shall we say, dramas in, in dance in professional vocational yes. schools that have necessitated that. And also, you know, we've all learned a lot more about how to look after young people, especially, you know, when they're working that hard and in such a specialised area.
0: What kind of dance career were you expecting when you started out? Did you have a sense of where it might take you? Um,
1: Funnily enough, I came across an old newspaper clipping the other day of Royal Ballet had this thing during the 90s called Dance Bites, which was a, a sort of short provincial tour oh, yes. we did once a year focusing mainly on new work and I'd made a new piece this was in 1995 and one of the dates was the, the orchard in Dartford and I was born in the Medway towns and grew up there and went to the, my local dancing school before I went to White Lodge in Gillingham mm-hmm. so the local paper wanted to do a sort of feature on on it as as we came to Dartford so they came to our house and interviewed my mum and dad and me and all of that and I remember my mum I, when I read this newspaper clip in the other day my mother's quoted as saying she wasn't looking forward to me going away because I was 12 and it was too young, sure. but she knew that's what I wanted and all of that. And I'd also been offered a scholarship to the Legat School at that point, which would have <laughs> saved my parents a lot of money because it was a six-year scholarship. So right. a rather different financial situation for them. But when I got into White Lodge, they said they thought that because there's a, a company attached to the school, there's much more likelihood of me getting a job at the end of it. Whereas that the Legat didn't have a company, I would have just been there auditioning for schools. But in the same newspaper clip, she also said, But then of course you know, they don't always take all the students, it depends how many contracts they've got, and sometimes they only take one or two right. out of a whole class. And I was there for seven years and my last three years. It looked increasingly unlikely that I was going to get in because things just weren't going my way and you know, and I wasn't physically developing, you know, I was a late grower. Mm-hmm. But then in my Last year, it all kind of came together and I did grow, and, which made me sort of more confident. And also I had a fantastic teacher in those last two years, actually, particularly, who kind of saved me, really, turned me round, made me sort of understand it all much better. And, um, and he, I, you know, I have a lot to, to thank him for. And without him, I, you know, I don't think I'd have got into the company.
0: Wow. And who was that?
1: That was Piers Beaumont. Oh. Piers Berman was a principal dancer with the old touring company in the 60s. He had to stop dancing early because of a, I don't know, a back or a knee injury or something. I I didn't really follow that through at the time, mm. but he came to the upper school. He was actually there, sort of on and off all the way through my time at the upper school. But I didn't really get him full time until my last year. But I had him enough in my second year, coaching and and solos, and he used to teach part of de as well. To get his philosophy and he did come to the school with a very different approach to teaching it's just opened everything up in in such a, a much more interesting way he made it all make sense and i did change you know quite radically in that last year year and a half
0: wow it's amazing yeah, what a, yeah. a teacher can do when they oh, see I, something I in a, a student
1: it's everything
0: Fast forwarding a bit to your mm-hmm. own choreography when you started making work with the, the Royal Ballet. Uh-huh. I remember, and I may be misremembering, but I'm remembering quite, quite. it felt quite extreme at the time. There was a bit of a Francis Bacon kind of vibe. It was a bit visceral. <laughs> the music was edgy it was by Michael Nyman and um, Orlando Garth. Oh, yeah, well, it was, was a... kind of, you know, that, it wasn't cosy. Ballet and um, no, um, well, is that yeah, is that sorry, fair? Yeah. Do you think is that the sensibility uh, no, that is
1: absolutely well? There's several strands to this, really. <laughs> One is that I started making work with the Royal Ballet Choreographic Group in 1981 because I had been in a quite lucky enough to be cast in quite a lot of new work by people like Macmillan, yeah, Fred Ashton, Tetley. And people like that. And I found they were the kinds of choreographer, particularly Macmillan and Tetley, who invited you to contribute quite a lot. Right. So I found I was making quite a lot of dance material. We used to have three or maybe even four sometimes of these choreographic evenings a year. And I was in also my colleagues' work as well, so I was also you know, involved in contributing to that. So I thought, well, you know, I'm going to have a go at this because I seem to be generating quite a lot of dance material, so it's, it's obviously coming out of me quite easily. yeah. But of course, you know, those first pieces were very much in the manner of the work that I'd been in. Sure. Um, and then I watched a South Bank... Do you remember the South Bank show? Oh, yes. I watched one of those in 1982. By chance, actually, because I almost didn't watch it. And again, that would have been something would have would have made a huge difference to the path I took if I hadn't seen that program and it was a program dedicated to Richard Alston who was a contemporary choreographer at the time yes who just a couple of years before had joined Rombear as their resident choreographer but before that he'd been an independent basically what you'd call that now but had also been to study with Merce Cunningham for a while in New York This programme, in partly because Richard is so erudite and fantastic at talking about dance, and Melvin asked all the right questions, Mm -hmm. and he was playing very much the layman, so making Richard really explain things. They also had three dancers on tap, as it were, when he was kind of making a piece uh, for the programme. Part of the programme showed the process of him making this piece on these three dancers, and then they did a a little performance of it at the end. Mm -hmm. But it also showed examples of his other work. But because he... Again, it's a bit like Piers Bowman. The, the clarity of his explanation about things and his philosophy about dance just completely made me think I'm going, I'm barking up the wrong tree here with my own work. I, I'm going to now go and see everything that's out there. Oh, wow. In the contemporary dance world in, in London. And it was actually a golden period of contemporary dance in London. Yes. And David Gotthard was running Riverside Studios. Val was running Dance Umbrella out of Riverside Studios. And The Place was doing interesting things. And other places, Chisholm Hale, places like that. But it was so exciting what was going on at the time seemed to have more to do with how you might take classical dance forward than some of the work that we were doing in the company. I later understood through people like Richard Alston, Sue Davis, Siobhan Davis, and Ian Spink particularly, and Michael Clarke, a very young Michael Clark at the time, who'd been trained at the Royal Ballet School, they were investigating a sort of postmodern classicism filtered through a kind of Cunningham technique. Yeah. But they were anglicising it, that's the only way I can put mm-hmm. it. Richard was also very interested in Ashton, you know, also Petipa, the classics, and Balanchine. So he was coming at Contemporary Dance via, I would say, neoclassicism, mm-hmm. but with a, a great clarity of vision and able to, in this programme particularly, convey that very clearly. So eventually, I've got just by chance, Richard was then commissioned to make a piece for the Royal Ballet. It was called Midsummer in 1983, and he cast me in it. And so I got to work with him, and then we, we became great friends. And he was really my choreographic mentor. And the piece you just alluded to with the Michael Nyman music, which was called A Broken Set of Rules, followed about eight months after I worked with Richard on Midsummer, in the summer of 1984. And Norman Morris, who was the director of the Royal Ballet at the time, really encouraged me to think big and be ambitious and not be afraid of the big stage and push the boat out, basically. And
0: I remember, I think at the time, I was reading an interview where you said something about enjoying working with difficult music, which stuck with me. And of course, you've continued to do yeah. that. What, what, what's well, the appeal of a, a challenging I mean, score for a dance I've maker? always,
1: I mean, music, I have to say, music is probably my first love mm-hmm. and, and sort of has been since. I had a fantastic, another teacher thing. I had a fantastic music teacher at White Lodge who taught us the history of music and how to read a score and, and organise the school concerts and all of that was amazing. He eventually went to Harrow, to teach at Harrow, actually. Mm. But he was called William Maiden, and he opened up my ears and and mind to music in a much more technical way. And then, of course, when I started to get to know Richard, he's a great champion of contemporary classical music. So when he eventually took over Rombert as artistic director, he commissioned me to do a piece and. He suggested all sorts of composers and things, so I would, you know, go off and listen to all this stuff. Mm-hmm. That first piece I made for Onward was by, by Harrison Birtwistle music, uh, which is very difficult. And then I made a piece for the Royal by Colin Mar- with music by Colin Matthews, and it went on and on and on. Eventually, I had so many issues with the orchestra at the Opera House because, to be fair, they weren't used to be playing that kind of music, not for dance anyway. Right. And they never got much rehearsal time, so it, I was always being tripped up by the orchestra. I changed tack in the 90s and started, you know, working with other kinds of music, although still, you know, some quite difficult stuff. John Adams. Yeah. Orlando, Orlando Goff wrote a lot of music for me during that period. But they kind of gradually came on side, the, the <laughs> orchestra. You know, if you got the right conductor, then, you know, you were you were much more likely to, to be yeah. successful.
0: then of course when you were artistic director at scottish ballet you did square up to those classic big russian ballet scores right, with yeah. <laughs> with the cinderella yeah. and sleeping beauty and nutcracker and so on and again you gave those fairy tales a very distinctive spiky uh, sensibility, the visuals but I think mostly Anthony MacDonald were yeah, really striking yeah, uh, yeah. it, it was almost as if you were having an argument or at least a conversation with the classics
1: well basically I mean I'd worked with Anthony a lot before Prince Split the Royal Ballet on mostly abstract work we developed a fantastic collaborative working relationship and he also designed for opera and theatre and he actually loves telling stories through design yeah and he now directs a lot as well. So it seemed sensible to include him in those productions. And in fact, actually, we sort of hammered out the concept of them between us, really. It was, it was very much a collaborative thing. Partly how I came to get the job at Scottish Ballet was because in my interview for the job, particularly the first one, which was the, the main one, they said, oh, "Well we will want to keep the ballet element and you know there's been lots of talk about us going completely contemporary but we want to remain a essentially a ballet company that does contemporary work right and the winter tour with the Christmas ballet is is our like it is with most companies particularly in America the cash cow for the season you know you make your box office up there by you know, having lots of performances of those things that you can really sell out the house on yeah so he said that they they said that it's important that we get those productions right so i said well you know i've never done those before but i am actually very interested in doing them but i would want to approach them in a slightly different way because i don't see the sense in another provincial company in the uk doing another set of traditional productions of those things sure by doing that we'll hammer out our own identity and i think we'll be able to tour more easily because it won't be like the other productions it'll be very different anyway they seem to really like that because particularly that reason but also other reasons of course as well i got the job Mm -hmm. and they really supported me in that and we were successful and so after the first one which was nutcracker chris barron who was the chief exec at that time said okay start thinking about the next one (laughs) and that was cinderella and blah 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 it went on yeah we, you know, we kept the tutus and the point shoes and the and the stories and the Tchaikovsky and all of that. I think we just re-examined, particularly the psychology of the fairy stories, which is a fantastic yeah. subject in itself. But also, you know, when they're set, we set our Nutcrack in Weimar Republic, Germany, because it's a very German story, and we wanted to in- filter it through the German expressionist painters of that period. It gives it a new energy. Yeah. And it meant that I could then make people listen to the Tchaikovsky music with new ears, you know, so that what's normally a polite little gavotte for the parents in the Christmas party and at one of Nutcracker became a raucous Charleston, (laughs) you know, with them all getting drunk and being flappers and all of that. The soldiers were in German infantry, First World War infantry uniforms, and and the, the mice were suffragettes. So it was all very... Much drawing in the history of that of that period, but with a very strong German flavor and it just gives people more to look at and more to yes. think about, but we also made sure that it was kid friendly you know child friendly family audience stuff, but there 's a kind of layer of it yes. that the parents can take were winking away as well. at the parents a bit yeah that that will go over the the children 's heads, but give the parents you know something particularly the humor uh, humorous side of it yeah. you know, the, to be witty on a level that won't upset the kids, but but the parents will get just as much out of. You know, they're not just taking their kids to see the ballet because that's what you do at Christmas. It's an entertainment for the whole family.
0: And, of course, running a company, when you've been a dancer and a choreographer, I guess it's a bit of a leap into the unknown. What is more of a nightmare, is it? dealing with the money or dealing with the people? I was lucky enough to have really good people looking
1: after the financial side, but of course, you know, I had to be part of that and things had to be, you know, these productions had to be managed within budgets and all of that sort of thing. But I had a very good team supporting me around all of that. Um, My job was basically just to get the company back on the map and beyond, get it to tour internationally and... Back to the Edinburgh Festival, those yeah. things. that You hadn't been to the Edinburgh Festival for 20 years. It was about to be closed down when I went. Mm-hmm. So it was its last chance. That was, that was the general feeling. It had been looking for a new home for a long time. So during my time there, we managed to make that happen and we moved into purpose-built new premises in, at Tramway in Glasgow. Mm-hmm. I think that when you're a choreographer... I mean, there are all sorts of different choreographers, of course, with different approaches. Mm. But the way I approached it, it was very much getting the dancers on my side to get the best out of them. You know, I knew that I had to gather around me a group of dancers that were interested in what I wanted to do. And we went through a whole process when I first went there to get that group. And it took, you know, I would say a couple of years to, to really, by the time I did Cinderella, I had a group that I felt I needed to really do those things the way I wanted to do them. And, of course, every few years people would leave because they were either retiring or had injuries or whatever, and so I would have to have more auditions and bring new people in. But but the core of that company remained with me all the way through, pretty much. And I had inherited some really good people as well and brought good people in. We, we were lucky enough to find really good people in auditions. Mm. And actually that first product from Nutcracker was the glue that made everybody work together, the new ones coming in with the ones that are already there to make a, a new kind of company. I'm, qu- I'm quite interested in the psychology of how to get the best out of dancers. Yeah. And I think you have to be a bit of an amateur psychologist to be a, an artistic director of, a, of well, any kind of company, probably any, any performing arts company. But dancers tend to be younger. So therefore, or you're getting them sometimes younger straight out of school. So you're also a kind of father figure as well. And I was a young parent at the time. You know, I had two, right. two primary school-aged children. Not that that's what I was dealing with in the company, <laughs> but, but I, I knew how to kind of play that role a bit. Yeah. But I think it's all to do with what you give them to do and how you invite them to become a part of that and contribute to it that gets them on the side. And then, of course, what you choose to give them to do, whether it's coming from me or from other choreographers that I invited to in, or acquired work existing work that we acquired, you know, that wanted to be part of the repertoire. So we had a lot of Balanchine in the first few years. Then you get Pat Neary coming in to stage that, so you get the real deal. I think it's important to choose the right people to come in to set these works, the existing works. So I always went out of my way to engage with either the choreographer or the artistic director of the company that the, Mm -hmm. the work came from originally, like Tricia Brown sent over two fantastic people to teach the piece of hers that we did, that sort of thing. And also in, in commissioning, if I was going to commission a big new work, like we did a new Romeo by Christoph Pastor, I brought in an existing one-act work which went into a mixed programme before we did the big new piece in order for the dancers to get to know him a bit and for him to get to know them. So we got more out of the creative process when he came to make Romeo than we would if he'd just come in cold. So it's all those kinds of things, you know, that make a difference.
0: And as we've discussed, you've created work in all sorts of different situations with your colleagues, Uh with your own company, um, with talented young dancers. And also, of course, as a a freelancer in all sorts of (laughs) situations. Does the way in which you create work, has that changed over the years?
1: Yes, I would say it has, but not through necessarily through me going, OK, I'm going to work differently now. Mm. It evolved, I would say, rather than changed. When I look back at old videos now of things, I'd say, well, I'd do that differently now. But I'm not ashamed of what it is. Also, the people that you collaborate with also change your your approach. I mean, when I started working with Antti MacDonald, the first piece we did together was for Dutch National Ballet. Even though it was an abstract piece, it had a Spanish flavour. It was music by Orlando Goff who loves Latin American dance rhythms and writes wonderful music around them. Wrote a fantastic score and and Anthony, it sent him down a a road and I went down there with him and then the next piece we did actually was with Second Stride because he was a designer for Second Stride but the next ballet I did I would say for a ballet company was Fearful Symmetries for the Royal Ballet and I brought the music to the table, the John Adams score, and I gave him an idea about what I thought the set should be, and he came back with his own idea about what that could be, and I loved it, so we went with that. So it made me then choreograph the ballet around this set, which was quite big, and elements of it moved. Things of affect what you do, your choices. I also worked with a lot of visual artists early on. That was partly because the Royal Ballet brought in Brian Robertson, who was an art critic and had run the Whitechapel Gallery for many years in the 60s. He had brought him in in an advisory capacity. There were quite a lot of young choreographers coming out of the Royal Ballet at that time, and they wanted to go back to a slightly Diaghilev kind of approach to using visual artists as as well as theatre designers. He introduced us all to various... Fine artists, and there was a lot during the 80s, particularly, there was a lot of work David Bentley worked with Victor Passmore, Christopher LeBron redid Ballet Imperial, the Ballet Machine piece, Patrick Caulfield made a piece with Michael Corder. So, there was lots of interesting different approach to visual element for dance in, in at the Royal Barley particularly at that time but also then as I say I was going to watch all this contemporary work yeah and so I would go to watch a piece by Rosemary Butcher for instance who was working with a German architect and so the, the set had a kind of architectural quality to it and with a sound designer rather than a composer I, I made a piece with Gabby Agus that the contemporary dancer Gabby Agus oh, yeah. who I actually I first saw working in dancing in one of Rosemary's pieces so all these things have a kind of thread and she and i made a duet for ourselves that was on it was the first thing i did for umbrella we worked with one of the sound engineers at the opera house in the sound department to uh create a, a sound score for that so you know that was the first time i did that and right. so every project
0: yeah. was sort of a new challenge and a new push in one direction
1: partly because i pushed it that way but also as i say it was to do with the people i chose to work with or i choose to work with certain people so that i would be drawn that way Mm. and the freelance work that i've been doing since i left scottish ballet i've had to work with many different kinds of designers because in america they like you to you know if you can to work with someone who's based there because it's just cheaper for them because it's so expensive to get working visas for people so I would work with lighting designers from America and costume designers and not always but in, in certain instances so yeah I broadened my my uh, palette, I suppose. And then I started working in opera as well.
0: You have covered Uh, the uh, waterfront, it is true. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I
1: suppose so, really. And also film, you know, I've made a a few dance films as well, so some directly for television, commissioned by Channel 4 or the BBC. And then the New Year's concerts that are filmed every year from Vienna, and they usually make a film these days rather than, than having the dance done live yeah. at the, on the day. So I've done a couple of those and we filmed on location in those fantastic palaces in Vienna and outside Vienna. And you make the, you make the stuff with, with the location in mind and you make it in the studio and then, and then you adapt it when you get onto the location. Yeah. And so all that is great fun, actually. <laughs> and, and, and having to sort of respond to briefs as well. You know, we need a piece that's this long of two twos, this many dancers, right. whatever. You know, that's quite interesting sometimes as well. Yeah.
0: Ashley, we've ranged far and wide, back and forth <laughs> across your career, and we could carry yeah. on happily roaming for a while, but I will stop. Before I do that, I'm just going to ask you the final question, which is... Why does dance matter to you?
1: Well, I think that I stopped short of that and why does dance matter, just generally. Music's, I would say, my first love, really, and has remained so. Dance kind of takes a second, you know, a back seat to that, in a way. And I also love the visual arts as well, Mm -hmm. and film. So dance is not the number one passion, really. I loved dancing and, and performing, and I absolutely adore, you know, making things in dance. But I think that dance definitely can say things that other art forms can't. And it also can't say things that other art forms can, <laughs> of course. You know, the famous Balanchine uh, maxim, you know, there are no mother-in-laws in dance. Yeah. So uh, there are things that I think sometimes dance tries to do that I think it, it can't really do and, and shouldn't and not quite often fails. That doesn't mean it shouldn't try, of course. But I think you need to be realistic about what, what it can achieve and, you know, and still still be inquisitive and adventurous. But I think that it can very often, it achieves things that you could never do, could never achieve in other kinds of Mm theatre. And I can't really put my finger exactly on how to make that clearer. But I think that it can convey emotions and carry ideas that it's just not possible to do in other performing arts in theatre. And sometimes that can be done without the support of other arts like music and design and other times it it collaborates with those other art forms wonderfully to say something very specific sometimes about dance and sometimes just about whatever its chosen subject might be but in in a very successful way that you wouldn't ever think sometimes that dance could achieve that yeah.
0: thank you i actually <laughs> it must be such a treat for the young fontaine dancers to be able to work with you, however (laughs) remotely, to have all that experience and all that thought and all that curiosity coming through the Zoom at them. I'm going to stop, (laughs) but thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure.
1: Always fun to talk about dance.
0: If Ashley has whetted your appetite for the Fontaine, you can get tickets to the final on the 9th of September It's hosted by Darcy Bustle and you can stream it on demand until the 19th of September. All the Fontaine information is in our show notes. The new season of Why Dance Matters will drop very soon, so please do subscribe and like the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Our guest today was Ashley Page. Why Dance Matters is made with the RAD team of Celia Moran, Melanie Murphy and Charlie Strachan. Our artwork is by Bex Glendinning and our resident gold medalist is our producer, Sarah Miles. I'm David Jays. Take care and see you soon.